Welcome to Bonnet to Dawn, the podcast that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are continuing our discussion of Northanger Abbey with just a little less John Thorpe. Sorry about that, Hannah. Well, I read the show notes and I actually don't think that's true. So (laughs) say what you want. Say what you want at the start of the show, Lauren, because the people will see. Uh, This week, we are discussing chapters 9 to 16, the some of the friendships in Northanger Abbey, some of them, and we might even throw in some Sanderton chat. But first up, an interview. So I met today's guest at the Jasna Winter Gala, where she talked about Austin and female friendships. And that talk was awesome. Lydia is a fifth-year PhD candidate in 19th century studies at Loyola University of Chicago. She is currently writing her dissertation on the subject of social climbers in Victorian novels, which sounds amazing. Um, She also serves as the co-chair of the Dickens Society Communications Committee. So we did have some Dickens chat. She brought me around to some Dickens points. We'll have her back. We can discuss that later at a later date. (laughs) Um, She's also the founding member of the Loyola University Chicago Victorian Society, um, L-U-C-V-S. They're on Twitter. They're great. So you guys should absolutely follow them, by the way. And she has also published many articles on people like Charles Dickens and the Bronte sisters. But today she's talking Austin. Well, it ranks above Mansfield Park for me. Fair (laughs) enough. But um, I I think when I first read it, I was surprised. It, I think everything depends on the order in which you read Austen in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I had started with Pride and Prejudice and Emma and Persuasion, which was a big surprise and mm-hmm. that I loved very much. And uh, then read Northanger Abbey. So it, was, it felt to me that it wasn't as good mm-hmm. as the other ones. Um I think the fact that the heroine is so young and naive and, and innocent. Um, but I think over the years, it's actually been growing on me. Yeah. I think part of it might have been watching the 2007 adaptation. That's oh, a great adaptation. It. Yeah, I mean, it, it was very good. And I think it also showed me more of the theatricality of the novel mm. than I at first registered when I was just reading the book itself and being frustrated with Catherine you know, her constant mistakes, her mm-hmm. her um, ability to be misled frequently, uh, the naivete. Oh, <laughs> it <laughs> feels I, I very young it. adult, doesn't it? Like I'm like reading it very slowly right now, and I'm like, oh, this is just really someone like figuring it out. Yeah. Whereas well, I love a Lizzie Bennet snap judgment. Oh, I know, but I mean, she's she's so much more mature than most twenty year olds are. I think right, Elizabeth yeah. Bennet is, you know, that's obviously older Austen reading back into a younger character, but this is much more believable. I think yeah. Catherine Moreland is she has that teenage air. She feels vulnerable, and there are other things I've started noticing. One of them is that she's desperately looking for some kind of guide, some other some mm-hmm. feminine model to pattern pattern herself on she doesn't have her mother's attention because she's so busy mm-hmm. um when mrs allen starts chaperoning her mrs allen is equally naive in many ways yeah. and wealthy so she's been very shielded and then she meets isabella 
and she's just completely smitten. I mean, she's four years older. She knows mm-hmm. all about society. Uh, she's been to Tunbridge as well as Bath. You know, she can compare yeah. fashion to London. She um, she's also very non-judgmental in her behavior towards Catherine. She seems like a friend. You know, she's very um, intimate. And there's that scene where they first meet and they agree to you know, spend the rest of their lives together, basically. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then she watches uh, Isabella walk away, and she wants to walk like that. It's this very envious, almost, but also loving kind of mm-hmm. engagement at first. Um, so I think, I think Fanny Price actually at Mansfield Park has a similar relationship with Mary Crawford, except she doesn't like that relationship the yeah. same way that that um that uh Catherine seeks it I think one thing to think about maybe is that Austin spent longer on this novel than on any other novel mm-hmm. ever that she wrote um I think that she spent I think she started writing it in the late 1790s so 1799 mm-hmm. And then revised it possibly in 1816, and then died. And you know when she was when she was ill and dying, she had not made any arrangements really to publish this thing. Right. She was still working on it, and so linking it to Sanditon, um, I think that she she might have even shelved it if Sanditon had worked better for her. For reasons I'll get into in a second, but <laughs> yeah, I I've been thinking about that a lot actually since your Jasna talk. Yeah, was she like using some of the ideas from Northanger Abbey and putting those into Sanditon and like, okay, this might work better because there's so many references in this book that people aren't even going to get anyway. Right. Well, time had moved on, you know. Yeah. Um, I think one interesting thing is that a lot of the titles she mentions in Northanger Abbey were almost immediately forgotten because they were the province of the female circulating library. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of interesting work now being done after digitization with people recovering a lot of these things and realizing the influences on female authors that came from these one-off, you know, one-hit wonders, basically. Mm-hmm. I think it, it wasn't until the 1920s, this is pretty well known, but... Um, uh, two academics, it's Montague Summers and Michael Sadler. They went back and looked up these titles and found out that Austin hadn't invented them. You know, the books that right. Catherine Moreland is reading with Isabella and that some of these ideas she gets from Isabella, um, they thought except for Matthew Lewis's The Monk that mm-hmm. they had all been invented. It turns out that was just the only one written by a man for the most <laughs> part. So, um, you know, John Thorpe, that's the only one he's read too. And I think that's... Uh, that's really amusing. Pretty telling that, for John Thorpe. Yes, it is. Uh, having read that book myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, I think over time, um, seeing the the shift from sensation fiction to novels more like what she was writing, Austin mm-hmm. might have at least started revising her ideas about how to present sensation fiction right, in relation to her heroine. And Sanditon there's a very interesting moment where um, uh, Charlotte enters Mrs. Whitby's library and it's a circulating library. And Mrs. Whitby is sitting there reading a novel because no one's coming in. No one's reading mm-hmm. these novels. And uh, so Charlotte goes over to a shelf and picks up Camilla, 
which is by Fanny Burney, published in 1796, and then decides not to read it, not to buy it, mm-hmm. and then leaves. But then that affects her attitude towards Clara Brereton because she goes, oh, you know, she reminds me of a heroine. Maybe it's because I just left the circulating library, but, you know, this is still a very strong influence. And the way Austen was writing this story, I think, especially considering Sir Edward becoming a um, a sort of rake and being very proud of it and wanting to kidnap women and wanting to marry women for their money, which is very 18th century, I think Austen might have been trying the opposite tack. What if you had a real-life novel that became a sensation novel? Interesting, yeah. As opposed to Northanger Abbey, where it's, um, you know, Catherine realizing that real life isn't like a sensation novel. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that was exactly where Austin was going, but both books are so focused on that kind of female reading and its effect on women. Yeah. I mean, what interested me when I was reading Sanditon last time as well in preparation for that talk was Austin sneaks in a lot of male authors as well like scott and byron and makes Mm -hmm. it very clear that her heroine is also reading those but um but the female reading the circulating library reading is something that i think could bring two young women together because they have this shared culture that other people wouldn't you know even henry tilney who's who knows so much about fabrics he's probably not reading as many of these novels he knows of them um, and he makes fun of them. He goes of the genre. So he's clearly opened some of them and looked at it. But, um, you know, most men aren't even that close to knowing about them in quite the same way. Do you have any thoughts on Henry Tilney? We're really trying to figure this guy out, I feel, this season. <laughs> well, the thing I love about him is he's devoted to his sister. I think it comes out of the family dynamics He's lost his mother. His father didn't treat her well. His older brother is a rake and a scoundrel and is away in the army most of the time. So he and his sister are very close. Maybe not until the father denied her um, the freedom to marry the man she loved. But I think they both are going through a lot psychologically, and that's why they are kind of, in a sense, all each other has. So when he's picking out his sister's clothes and doing errands for her in town and spending time with her at the opera and including her in things. He's being an incredible brother and he's, he's the person you want to marry. <laughs> you know, It's even better than a mama's boy. This is somebody who, who values women and doesn't feel emasculated by entering their spaces. Um, I think that's a lovely take on yeah. him. <laughs> I really like him. Uh, he was the best part of reading the novel for me, I think was just his, uh, He's so much fun. He's so carefree. Uh, I think it might have been a model she was moving towards in Sanditon um, with mm-hmm. Sydney Parker. I think he actually would have been a lot of fun in a, not in a Darcy kind of way, but in a uh, a jovial, joking, you know, cross between Frank Churchill, maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> guy. Um, but I think Henry Tellney is top of my list for someone I could actually be with and not want to run away to Gretna Green with someone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think we're reading it the first time as a for Catherine, which I resented because I don't like feeling like I don't know what's going on socially. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. we're just completely, we have no idea what's going on. And um, 
I think it's a brilliant use of focalizing uh, the action through Catherine because mm-hmm. we're almost as equally surprised. And it's one of those books that you do have to go back and reread after you read it through because you miss so much because she misses so much. Um, but I think Henry isn't perfect. He can be abrupt. You know, he's a little too severe on her. I think when she says, you know, your dad's an asshole. Did he kill your mom? I feel like, <laughs> I feel like he should have been like, good question. I've wondered this too. You know, he, because, because he does admit when he comes to see her that, um, you know, his father did not treat her well. Um, right. I think he mentions that before as well. So, um, I think what he says to her in that moment is born out of frustration that she's not more sensible. Um, yeah. Because I think at that point he does sort of have feelings for her and he's thinking of her as a future wife. And there were a lot of ideas um, back then as to how to prepare yourself for that moment of maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, as Mr. Bennett says, some men may prefer a stupid wife, but you know, Mr. Knightley's <laughs> perspective on that is that that isn't true. Um, men of sense do not want silly wives. Um, so I think Austin is in a way touching on this debate, you know, do you want a stupid wife who's easily led? Mm-hmm. It's very Rousseau, you know, or do you want a woman who's well-informed and can actually be a partner to you? Um, the forerunner of the companion at marriage, I think. And she goes back and forth on it a little bit. <laughs> That's kind of what I appreciate too about Catherine and Henry's relationship mm-hmm. is that they actually are two people that like sit down and talk and fall in love and feel mm-hmm. like they are well matched as partners. Yes. I think uh, Emma and Knightley are getting there at the end of Emma. I think um, mm-hmm. Fanny Price and Edmund know immediately that they are because they've been in this quasi sibling relationship for so long. Right. It's totally creepy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that they, uh, I think that Edmund chooses not to work it out with Mary Crawford because she won't, she literally won't. Um, she knows what she wants. And yeah. in some ways I really like her for that. You know, she knows what she wants. Have you taught Northanger Abbey just out of interest? No, I haven't. Um, not formally. I've actually helped people mm-hmm. write papers on it, though. Um, okay. One of the most interesting ones recently was looking at the excerpts in the first chapter that talk about um, what Catherine has read prior to coming to um, Bath, because a lot of those allusions come from passages that are talking about companionate marriages or the issue of marrying against a parent's will. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't look those things up on our brand new amazing internet that allows you to do this now, um, you miss out on the context, which would have been perfectly right. obvious to Austin readers who had read those things. Um, right. you just The Shakespeare ones, I think, are usually glossed, but the other ones aren't so much. Um, and they're very boring, you know, most, mostly 18th century compositions mm-hmm. by poets that now aren't known but um sort of the kind of thing that women would read for improving literature you know here's how women mm-hmm. should be behaving here's how um couples get together that kind of thing okay so that shows you that she's been reading to try to find a pattern for herself of behavior and she can't mm-hmm. find it in literature and then she goes to sensation fiction. She certainly doesn't find it there. And then she sort of finds out how to behave because of life experiences, I think. 
Um, so, you know, the real book of life, I guess, is if that's how you learn lessons, right. you know. I think one thing we don't understand is that people back then, even an average woman at her home, middle class, lower class, was better read than most people nowadays in terms of mm-hmm. the sheer number of books they were reading. And it's something that uh, I think the Victorians had a hard time, especially literary critics, comprehending. And we still have an issue with that, which is why the term genius came into being, because mm-hmm. people could not fathom that people who hadn't gone to Oxford or Cambridge could write these works of literature. Right. Um, people say that about... Emily Bronte, about Jane Austen, about um, even Dickens in his lifetime, because he people knew he wasn't formally educated, uh, about Shakespeare. And it's really because they're middle to lower class people who understand psychology and the conventions of reading, because they, you know, they've been reading these things themselves, and they know what people expect from authors at the time. Um, but I, I hate that word genius, because it, <laughs> yeah. it, it's like they just instinctively wrote a book, um, whereas as we can see from Austin's drafts, she wrote and rewrote and was very, um, very severe on herself as an editor as well as an author. But this all comes into play when she's writing this book because she's drawing on all of her reading to color it, I think. And we are back. So I've got to say, I loved the Fanny Price, Mary Crawford uh, and Isabella and Catherine uh, discussion, mm-hmm. right? Because I think there's so much there's so much to unpack there with toxic friendships, which we're going to kind of come to later on, and just comparing the relationships that Austen women have in her books and the friendships that you should have and the friendships that you end up with. Right. I think what's interesting about Northanger Abbey as opposed to Mansfield Park is that Catherine is given the space to be fooled by Isabella's friendship but Fanny kind of isn't allowed that freedom Mm -hmm. because you know we said it all on the Mansfield Park read long so if you haven't listened to that really recommend going you know checking that out before or after the Northanger Abbey one but one of the things that comes up again and again and again is that Fanny isn't allowed to be wrong at any point and that's almost the opposite of Catherine but also, similarly, uh, Fanny isn't allowed to have an alternative friendship. So by the end of the novel, she's stuck with Edmund, who is a letdown as a friend. He's a letdown as a lover. And he's a letdown as a brother figure. Wow. I just think it's really sad. It's like the opposite of Catherine. And so, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's interesting that this original book that someone in the Facebook group was saying was almost like Jane Austen rehearsing for Mansfield Park Mm -hmm. but in a lot of ways I think that Fanny is a less successful heroine because a lot of the freedom to be wrong and to learn and to grow and to interact with people she isn't afforded that at any point and I you know we said why we think that is in the Mansfield Park read long and what kind of situations that sets us up for and the moral center and things like that but just in terms of interactions with people and friendships i think catherine by being wrong is uh just a a more well thought out and interesting person Mm -hmm. and character yeah well she carries that story too whereas fanny just i mean she kind of drags it she kind of centers it but also drags it (laughs) like a a weight dragging you into the bottom of the ocean (laughs) sorry fanny (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, I 
also really liked uh, Lydia's summing up of Henry's comfort in stepping into the female sphere. Mm-hmm. Like, I loved the way she put that. And I feel like it's something that I've been trying to articulate and failing to articulate for many years. I really want to push back on Henry's uh, discomfort or anger, frustration at Catherine saying, hey, I think your dad killed your mum. Because <laughs> that's a shitty thing to say. <laughs> she She's a guest in his house. He has caught her snooping in the private rooms of his dead mother. She then turns around and is like, oh, FYI, I think your dad killed your mum. Like, you're keeping it a secret. Like, how is he meant to respond to that? It doesn't matter how you dress that up. It's not a nice thing to say. So I'm team Henry with that one. Catherine was in the wrong. I'm glad she feels like shit afterwards. It's a learning moment and she needs the lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Got into like a real football manager. I'm like, yeah, she needs to know. Back to the book. So this week's set of chapters are definitely a treat. We have two carriage rides, we have two nights at the theatre, we have two balls, and we have a massive stage left from the Tilney army with an appearance from both the general and the captain. Mm -hmm. This set of chapters also includes two of, I think we can agree, uh, two of the most iconic scenes from the novel. Yeah, absolutely. And it's when we transition into volume two. So chapter 16 is technically volume two. Mm -hmm. So I think good time. You want to dig into those chapters? You want to pull it apart? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, I'm going to go over some of my notes from these chapters. Uh, The notes that I can read, to be honest. There probably were some better insights, but they're lost to bad handwriting. So um, I thought I was being smart and I was like underlining all of the the key parts that I liked. And honestly, my book is just like the whole text with just a line (laughs) underneath it. And so every time I go back to make my notes, I'm like, oh, I guess I like the book. That's my hot take. (laughs) This was good. Like this bit. And there's so much where I've just written like dialogue (laughs) next to where there's dialogue. You're just marking the dialogue. Yes, this is dialogue. I'm just like, yes, this is talking. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've identified this. Um, <laughs> so uh, I am sort of in the middle of doing a lot of gothic reading right now. So I think one of the things that I'm looking at heavily at this book at the moment are just like signals for, you know, gothic literature. So in this set of chapters, we have John not only kidnapping Catherine, but we also have him hijacking her at the ball when he engages her for a dance, but then goes off to just, you know, gamble and talk shit about horses, um, leaving her unable to dance with Henry Tilney. As a gothic satire or homage, which we'll discuss a little bit more next week, we definitely need to see our lead lose her agency in some way. And I think, you know, in a gothic novel, we're sort of expecting more of a patriarchal figure, an uncle or, you know, a husband or a father figure locking away their daughter in a tower. Um, But what Austin is sort of doing here is bringing that loss of agency into like real life situations, which I really appreciate about Northanger Abbey. Yeah. So, you know, women can be hijacked, you know, by, you know, polite expectations or ignorance or like the rules of society. Yeah. I, when I read that, I I really loved it. And also... I think it's interesting too because the first chapter here is uh, really setting up. It's like foreshadowing how mm-hmm. that's going to happen and how that 
uh, hijacking is going to take place. And she does it to herself. It's happened in earlier chapters where someone will say, oh, you know, what did you think of so-and-so or how was today? And then she has to give the polite answer and then right. that kind of gets her into these situations. And in chapter nine, the Thorpes and her total loser of a brother, James, come to <laughs> get her in like a proper get in bitch, we're going shopping moment. And right. they just arrive and it's like, you know, we're going for this carriage ride. It's going to be great. And she is worried about the propriety of going out, you know, her brother and Isabella and her and John, like, is it okay? So she turns to Mrs. Allen oh, for yeah. reassurance. And this is what I was saying last week, like Mrs. Allen's meant to protect her and Mrs. Allen's just like, ah, oh, do what you want. <laughs> like, if you think it's fine, I guess it's fine. So she goes, it's not a good time. JT just chat shit. Isabella ignores her in favour of James. And it's just, she doesn't have fun. Poor mm-hmm. Catherine. She did it to herself. Except she didn't. Because those three monsters did it to her. <laughs> um, so in chapter 10, Catherine and Isabella and the gang go to the theater for the first time. It isn't mentioned what they're seeing. But I just um, want to throw it out there that Bluebeard was playing in theaters in Bath at this time. And... Um, We'll talk about that more next week. Do you think that Austin doesn't say what they were seeing at the theatre because Catherine spends the whole time looking for Tilney and he's not there? Almost like the whole, she sets up Catherine's reading, but has she actually read the book? So she goes to the yeah. theatre, but has she taken in, like, is what? she taking in the lesson? Like, yeah. what did she see? I know, I would love to to know what she saw. I feel like that's a missed opportunity on Austin's part. Yeah. But, um... But how relatable. You're sat there and you're like, is that him? Yeah, is, is that, that him? him? Yeah. That looks like him. Is that him? And Isabella's like, I can't see him. <laughs> I do love that we're building anticipation. And I also do love that Isabella is um, egging her on. Because mm-hmm. she's the one yeah. that like really wants to see this guy, like to check him out, which um, makes their friendship well, she says she feel does. very... Yeah, she, she says, says she, she does. does. Yeah. That makes their friendship feel very real to me. Mm-hmm. The good news, though, is that she bumps into Eleanor... Uh, at the pump room and then she's like oh my gosh like are you going to the ball tomorrow and Ellen's like yeah and she's like oh my brother's going too and Catherine immediately admits that she really fancies him which again relatable moment it's like you've said like too much because Catherine's like oh he's so good at dancing and Ellen's like it ends with Eleanor being like oh I think Austin says she knew more about her friends like feelings so Eleanor totally Mm -hmm. knows what's going on she's like oh you fancy Henry okay cool like calm down (laughs) and doesn't she stop telling me you like his butt doesn't she go home and she tries to read a little bit but yeah she's like like, she can only think about dresses yeah she's like I need to what am I gonna wear tomorrow because I think this is the last chapter that she reads I think so too that she's like actually reported as doing it and she Mm -hmm. can't she's so distracted and then it doesn't really they talk about books more and they still talk about Udolfo, but we're not talking about yeah. what Catherine is like actually reading at this very moment after this yeah, point. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, another bit that I really love in chapter 10 is um, when John Thorpe puts up a fight after realizing that Catherine is going to dance with Tilney instead of him. And then he like totally gets derailed and interrupts himself. And he asked Catherine if Tilney would be interested in buying a horse because his friend, Sam Fletcher, has totally got one to sell that would suit anybody, a famous and clever animal for the road, only 40 guineas. And like, this is just where I wrote in my notes that John Thorpe is an actual used car salesman. 
Oh, absolutely. But you know who that reminds me of? Do you remember there's that bit in Persuasion where Charles Musgrove is like, oh, Wentworth, do you mind just um, walking uh, walking with Anne for a minute? Because I need to go see a man about a gun. Oh, yes. So Austin has definitely had to listen to men just talking shit about stuff they're going to buy. Yeah. Definitely. I think that hasn't changed. Like, tell me if I'm wrong, but it is like a stereotypical like broad broad strokes gender assumption thing Mm -hmm. men love gadgets and they love to talk about it and they love to describe the drone that they've been eyeing or the projector that they have on their amazon wish list or oh yeah you know or like the seventh the seventh pad thing they've bought (laughs) like they've got the ipad they've got like the kindle thing they've got like the amazon thing for sure I mean, and this is, but women this is a car guy. are vapid for talking about shoes, you know? Right. Well, totally. Which is, Ugh. which again is very nice about Tilney. It's refreshing when you compare and contrast. Because he's talking, yeah, about, something he's talking she can't about, talk about Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, chapter 11, Lauren, one of your favorites. It's the famous kidnapping scene. Mm-hmm. It's the scene where that whole discussion about Blaze Castle and all of the. Yeah, great stuff that we dug into last week mm-hmm. is mentioned. So if you want, you could pause this week, go back, re-listen to last week's bit about Blaze Castle. And that's this, chapter 11. On this reread as well, and especially uh, seeing like your response to it, it made me realise that the kidnapping is a very like fight or flight response from John Thorpe. Because Henry is really showing himself as a threat at this point, yes, right? Yes, definitely. And it's not just John Thorpe, but it's it's JT and it's Isabella who are who are feeling threatened by that, and that's why there's mm-hmm. so much hustle and bustle and eagerness just to get her out of the door and into that carriage with as little argument as possible. And they've seen at this point that the Allens aren't gonna they don't stand care. up for Catherine, yeah. like Mrs. Allen's such a pushover. And I think really like Isabella and James are as much to blame in this scene. I think that's one of the unique things about John Thorpe is that he really isn't alone in being a shit. Mm -hmm. Like he's very much matched by his sister and they are very much aided by her own brother. Again, someone who should be protecting her. Like poor Catherine, James should be protecting her and is too focused on Isabella. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Allen should be protecting her, but is too focused on her dresses. Mr. Allen isn't thoughtful enough to realise that Mrs. Allen isn't looking after her properly. So although he's meant to be a man of sense, he's not stepping in. And then General Tilney, who takes her into his house in the next set of chapters, fails to do so. Mm -hmm. So like, she's just really on her own. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like the chapter nine was kind of foreshadowing this carriage trip. I think this really starts to show Catherine is kind of struggling she's on her own uh so one of the key things about the kidnapping is that Catherine had plans to go out with the Tilneys she's made those plans previously and John and Isabella and James kind of totally sweep that aside and they see the Tilneys in the street and she wants to go back and she can't and John won't let her and it's really quite like a evocative scene when he's like whipping the horses to go faster and she can't get out of the car and so in chapter 12 Catherine is mortified she's upset she can't believe that the Tilneys would think that she would leave them like that and to just be so dismissive and so she goes to call on Eleanor but she's not received so they say oh you know 
she's not in the house. I, I think they say she's not in the house. Yeah. And then she gets to the end of the road. She gets to the end of, um, is it Milsom Street? No, it's it's the Pulteney Street. I think it's Pulteney Street. It's this, it's this one long street in Bath, which I, like, you would get to the end of it and if you turn around, because it's so straight mm-hmm. and broad, you would see people coming out and she turns around and she sees Eleanor Tilney and her father coming out of the house and she's just like, that bitch lied. Right. She, she was there the whole time. Well, she's mortified. Yeah. She can't like, how does she fix it? Eleanor won't receive her. She can't apologize. She can't set things straight. And so when they go to the theatre again, and again, we don't know what they've gone to see, she immediately is saying to Henry when she like finally catches his eye and he's being, he's being cold. He's being a bit frosty. Yeah. And she says like, oh, you need to let me apologize. Like, I'm so sorry. It was a big misunderstanding. They lied. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. And he does warm. And then he reveals, and I think this is a bit that we both liked, that Eleanor has also been feeling bad because she doesn't want uh, Catherine to think that she was trying to be rude by not receiving her the day before. And it's just this horrible, big misunderstanding. And I think like, oh, it's just so, that's so real, like cleared up really nicely so quickly because everyone just says the thing she doesn't avoid him she's not like oh i feel awkward so i won't go over and he is a bit frosty but he does say hello to her Mm -hmm. yeah i this is like one of those rom-com moments that could really stretch out for pages and Mm -hmm. pages of two people just like feeling angsty about some sort of misunderstanding and just giving each other longing looks or whatnot. But I do like... Prejudice. (laughs) Favorite book ever. Um, But I do love that she's like, oh, I have to clear this up right away. Because that's actually very similar to something that I would would do because I do feel like this... I, I get this anxiety, this like social anxiety, like, oh my God, does this person think that, you know... I yeah. left them on read on text mess- message, but I haven't responded. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. No, definitely. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's another way of Austin kind of bucking that trend or like bucking the expectation mm-hmm. by not giving you an entire chapter of her not knowing what's going on. It's like the very next bit. It's like, oh no, it's fine. We're, we're yeah. all friends again. We're Which again. And we're back on track. Yeah. And it just, it keeps the story moving. We still get that little like tension right mm-hmm. and that's one of the really nice things about Northanger Abbey it just it uh subverts your expectations at every turn the other really nice thing about chapter 12 is that John Thorpe spills the tea on daddy tea that's General Tilney mm-hmm. <laughs> and he reveals that they've been gossiping about Catherine and that surely can't end well no. Right. John no. Thorpe has been talking to your crush's dad. <laughs> Alarm bells, obviously. And so like, I just, yeah, I love this chapter because there is all of that anxiety and then like the early warning signs. Uh, the Well, the early signs that Eleanor and Catherine are going to be great friends because they're both upset about the same thing. And then those mm-hmm. early warning signs like John Thorpe, General Tilney, they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be like, talking. Like it's setting up so much stuff. Like don't let them talk. Don't let them be in a room together. Of course, this does bring us to chapter 13, where the Thorpes try to kidnap Catherine again. Again. I know, they can't stop. I think this chapter is just like, thing happens, thing happens again, thing happens, thing happens again. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, they are going so far as to actively cancel her plans with Eleanor this time. I know. You can't believe that moment when John Thorpe's like, don't worry. I just went and told Eleanor, you totally can't hang out. It's fine. Such high school peer pressure. 
in this one. But, you know, Catherine is learning, right? Though that's Mm -hmm. like the great thing about that pattern repeating is that she stands fast. You know, it gets pretty cruel and there's all these hypocritical insults thrown. And even by James. Yeah. Oh, he's so James. horrible to her in he's that moment. He's so invested. He just wants her to go along with it. Yeah. He's like, I need to get my leg over. Come mm-hmm. on. Come on. Be my sister. Be my friend. Like, you're right. Yeah. I mean, he is giving just as much peer pressure in this moment as, he's as not, anyone else he, in that I game. I mean, he's not a great, he's not a great guy uh, at this point. You know, at no, at no point has he kind of proven himself to be uh, a good brother or a good role model or friend to Catherine. But also, like, I mean, he, they have these nice interactions, but they're insincere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he doesn't, he doesn't turn to Catherine until the end of the book when he realizes, you know, he's doing in Isabella. He doesn't talk as much as her, but he says one thing and he means another. I've come, you know, Catherine yeah. thinks that he's come to Bath to see her, but he's come to see Isabella. He says, oh, you should come and spend time with us, but he's not interested in spending time with her. He's interested in spending time with Isabella. Yeah. She is a vehicle for his romantic life. And like time in each other's presence doesn't equal quality time. He's right. not spending time with Catherine. He ignores her in the pump room. He In this set of chapters alone, the theatre and the pump room, she has to sit there in silence while he and Isabella just talk about stuff and don't involve her at all, which is a, mm-hmm. an accusation that people throw at Henry and Eleanor about the art conversation that's coming up. Mm-hmm. But James and Isabella have already done it to her. That's it's true. happening over and over again. James. And James is related to her. Henry isn't. That's true. Last week we called him uh, wet, but would you like to upgrade that statement? To soggy? <laughs> I think he is wet. I think he's a little. Yeah, yeah I think he's wet. I think he's the soggiest. The I don't like him. Boy. Yeah, I didn't really. Down that's one of those thoughts that formed in the talking. But I think, yeah, I think James is a shit. <laughs> so this makes his uh, relationship with John Thorpe make more sense. Because I think last week yeah. I was like, I was like trying to figure out like what do these two have in common? Like what is what's going on with these guys? And then I'm like, Dick okay, brothers. wait a minute. You know what? They deserve each other. To wrap that all up, Catherine does hold fast, goes to Eleanor. It's like, we're BFF. Everything's cool. Straight in the house. Yeah. Runs in the room. Runs in the house. They're all very surprised. (laughs) General Tilney, very cool with it. Because he's just like, hey, this girl's rich. She can do what she wants. He's like, oh, did my servant not get the door? I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill him. I don't think he says he's gonna. I'm a murderer. I'm gonna kill that servant. And Catherine's like, oh my, maybe he kills people. <laughs> okay, so chapter fourteen. I had to reread this chapter several times because it's great. Um, that is when Henry, Catherine, and Eleanor go on their walk, and this is really dense, and it's just full of like references to other books, and it includes one of my favorite exchanges. Um, Hannah, who would you like to be? Would you like to be Catherine or would you like to be Henry? Henry. Yeah, you want to be Henry. Okay. So I'm Catherine. And I say to Henry, but you never read novels, I dare say. Why not? Because they are not clever enough for for you. Gentlemen read better books. The person, be it gentleman or lady, who has not pleasure in a good novel must be intolerably stupid. I have read all Mrs. Radcliffe's works and most of them with great pleasure. Oh, 
Wow. Um, that was good, wasn't it? That's it's very good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chef's um, kiss. Do it again. good. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, then goes on to say that he has read all of Udolpho in two days, which would be four volumes and 1,800 pages. So, I mean, does Henry have a lot of time on his hands? I don't really know. I, that's like binging, like, all seasons of The Wire, I feel. He's trying to impress her. Well, it's just like a throwaway thing, right? Maybe that's the joke. That's like mm-hmm. one of those, is Austin expecting us to know? Like that he's over-exaggerating? He's doing like a, a tiny harmless version of what John Thorpe does. Yeah, yeah. I think that is a good question. So like people back in the day would know, right? They'd know. Udolpho's yeah. a massive book. Whoa, this You'd guy. Like, what? You read all of the Harry Potter series in two days. And um, there is another exchange that I would like to point out on this walk between Eleanor and Catherine while they are discussing Udolpho. Um, would you like to be Eleanor or Catherine? Oh, I'd like to be Eleanor. Okay. I've got a great voice for Eleanor. Oh, dear. Okay. Whenever you're ready, Eleanor. You are fond of that kind of reading. <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to do my normal voice. Okay, sounds good. Uh, this is awful. This is like a script. I know. Uh, you are fond of that kind of reading. To say the truth, I do not much like any other. Indeed. That is, I can read poetry and things of that sort. And I do not dislike travels, but history, real solemn history, I cannot be interested in. Can you? Yes, I am fond of history. Oh, oh, awkward, awkward moment. Well, I wish I were too. I read it a little as a duty, but it tells me nothing that does not either vex or weary me. The quarrels of popes and kings with wars or pest I can never say pestilences. <laughs> Hard word. With wars or pestilences in every page, the men all so good for nothing and hardly any women at all it is very tiresome. And yet I often think it odd that it should be so dull, for a great deal of it must be invention. The speeches that are put into the heroes' mouths, their thoughts and their designs, the chief of this must be invention, and invention is what delights me in other books. Um, so, love that exchange. Great moment. Great, great moment. A um, lot of things that- going on in that moment. It makes it does make me think that Austin spends so much time telling us that Catherine is like I just I don't know that Catherine is as like dumb as mm-hmm. I think people want to like paint her because there's mm-hmm. almost like Emma is sold to you from the start as being handsome, rich and clever, right? Right. Clever and it's the like and we're told again and again and again and again that she's clever and she makes all of these mistakes and she reads every situation wrong and we've got the flip side with Catherine where we're told that she's a little slow on the uptake she hasn't read as much as other people she hasn't been in society as much so she doesn't really know what's going on and like for in a lot of circumstances that is the case but then every now and then she comes out with something like that which is just it is genius and like Austin is knowingly having Catherine say something that is very insightful and true she's not wrong Mm -hmm. she isn't saying something that she thinks is right and it's just you know it's flawed like this is a great argument which Glynis Ridley discussed so beautifully um 
in episode 28 of season three. So I highly recommend um, if you're doing this read along to go back and listen to that bit. I think it's like 14 minutes. And I will say that up until I heard that lecture, I really like glossed over that whole exchange with like Catherine and Eleanor because what I had just done instead was code Eleanor as sensible because she loved reading history. And she was like, highbrow. That's what I thought we were basically signaling here. And then Catherine, of course, by comparison, is silly or lowbrow because she rejects what we might now think of as, you know, history or something academic. Um, But that's not necessarily the case when we're talking about, especially in the early days of the novel, who's writing novels, who's writing history, how they're writing them, who's represented and all that good stuff. What I think is really interesting too, though, is that um, Eleanor doesn't disparage novels, and no, that would be a really doesn't. easy that would be a really easy counter argument to have another character be like, "Oh, you know, I don't read novels." She mm-hmm. it's it, she is asking Catherine, "What do you like to read?" Catherine tells her. Catherine says something about history, which is the stuff that Eleanor Eleanor doesn't even say it's the only thing she likes to read. She just it's says, true, "I'm yeah. fond of history." Mm-hmm. So it's such like an even like. Eleanor is a great character because she really listens and she gives Catherine the floor, which is why she's able to come out with stuff like that. She's allowed Mm -hmm. the space to speak. And Mm -hmm. Eleanor isn't forcing, like, you know, she she's just it's a conversation. It's a two way thing. And she does say responding to Catherine and she does acknowledge Catherine's point, too, and say, like, you know, okay, yes, you're right. I try to, like, be discerning with what I'm reading. But, you know, Catherine's not there yet. Yeah. And her point does really stand of like, this just doesn't like interest me. I don't see myself represented in these stories. Who is this yeah. for? What is this? And I think it's a great point. Yeah. I just, it's such a, it's a lovely moment. Mm-hmm. So we go from that lovely moment to chapter 15, which is obviously the big shock reveal. We didn't see it coming. It surprised everyone. Mm-hmm. Isabella and James are engaged. Isabella is so happy. She doesn't care two figs for the money. Uh, she's getting a sister. You know, Catherine is her best friend. She loves James. Like, oh, they're so in unison. They're so in sync. It's just the best possible news. And both girls are like, they are very happy. And it is like a lovely moment. If it wasn't for the fact that, you know, that Isabella is chatting shit. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty great like you just at this point so much has been done to set up the fact that she never says what she means or that she'll say something and immediately turn around and you know just do something else and so in the very next chapter chapter 16 the first chapter in volume two we I think quite fittingly immediately go to a ball James isn't there he's left Bath to go and tell his parents the wonderful news and Isabella at first it's like oh I can't go I can't dance like while I'm so far away from my beloved and then it's you know it's totally fine for me to go I'll go but I can't dance I'll go but I won't dance Mm -hmm. and then it's you know I'm totally gonna dance with this sexy Captain Tilney that sounds great and Catherine is just like oh there's gotta be some kind of mistake like Isabella said that she wasn't gonna dance and you know you should totally tell your brother she's having this conversation with henry she says like you should tell your brother that she's engaged and it's it's just not in it it can't happen like they shouldn't be dancing and henry is like well what do you what do you think their motives are like Mm -hmm. i mean 
is she the sort of person that says one thing and means another? And Catherine's trying to defend her friend and they have this quite frank conversation just about motive and human nature and behaviour and Mm -hmm. Catherine, you know, maybe thinking the best of people. And it's one of those moments where like Catherine isn't there yet. Right. Like she doesn't understand what Henry's saying and Henry isn't just out and out saying like, I think your mates are tart. And I think yeah. I think my brother's a fuck boy. But yeah. that's that's what he's saying. And we see that, but Catherine doesn't see it because she just doesn't see the world in that way. So I think one of the things that's really interesting about um Catherine and Isabella that we really start to see at this point is is that uh Isabella goes goes around the world thinking that every everybody is behaving exactly the way she does. And so she's always yeah. calling Catherine sly despite um Catherine not being sly Catherine Mm -hmm. doesn't have any guile or artifice Mm -hmm. but Isabella talks to her as if she has because her assumption is that of course she does because that's what she's like it's what her mum's like it's what her brother's like it's what her sister's like that is her bread and butter that's how she's been raised and what Henry's really getting to getting at in this scene is just like Catherine doesn't see the world like that and every interaction you have with the Morelands I mean James is the odd one out really because her parents are very much like this is the situation it just it doesn't occur to her yeah that anything like anything untoward would be happening because she wouldn't behave that way and that's that Mm -hmm. is the the hard life lesson that i think she learns in northanger abbey is that uh you can't assume that people are behaving the way that you would behave but you have to behave to other people that you know it's that like uh treat others how you want to be treated Mm mm-hmm but then for Catherine, but remember others aren't treating you how they want to be treated. Yeah, I think yeah. we, that's, I love that between Isabella and, and Catherine is just, there's a lot of like nurture, like it's not nature versus nurture, it's all nurture, I think in Northanger Abbey. There's some, um, I feel like the cracks start to show too, really, um, like in this chapter, chapter 15, and then in 16, when we get the letter, 16 mm-hmm. when we get the letter, correct? Um, I think even just this whole set, like with the with the yeah. balls and her yeah. um, ignoring her at the theatre and stuff, like this yeah. is a hard set of chapters for Catherine and just really up and down. But yeah, especially I think the cracks are really showing. They're like a hairline fracture and then it's like, oh, breaking. Yeah, because I think in 15 you really start, you register Catherine's discomfort with her behaviour mm-hmm. and how she's like, I know this isn't right. This is not right. And then in 16, it's like warning bells are going off when they're reading the letter from James talking about how much money they're going to have, you know, Oh, yeah, and Isabella's disappointment. I forgot and, about that. Yeah, yeah and talking and about Catherine's father. And she's talking the dad. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so it's like, oh. Poor Dickie Morland. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's like, oh. And it's funny because in chapter 15, um, she's got this whole spiel about how she doesn't care about money. Right. You know? And again, money chat has been happening a lot in this chapter because we've got the, I can't, I think it's in chapter nine in the very first one of the set, you have um, John Thorpe doing the bit where he's like testing the waters and he calls Mr. Allen Catherine's godfather. Yeah. And she's like, he's not my godfather. And he's like, no, but you spend a lot of time with him, don't you? And she's like, yeah, I mean, I guess we spend some time together. And he's like, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, that's, and like, that's uh-huh. it. Yeah. She is pretty upfront with him too about like, not being a goddaughter or like an heiress basically yeah, she, she is not telling listening. him yeah 
They are not hearing her. Yeah, well, he's made up his mind, hasn't he? Like, he thinks he, he knows has. who the Allens are. He Absolutely. can't, like, blinded, blinded by his own confidence, arrogance. Yeah. 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 So something I thought we might do is uh, just to really test Isabella and Catherine's friendship. Mm-hmm. I've got a, are you in a toxic friendship quiz from the internets? Up oh here. my gosh. Okay, are we you playing ready? as Isabella or Catherine? You decide. What do you think? You could flip a coin. Uh, Isabella doesn't think she's in a toxic friendship. Right. I mean, Isabella isn't in it. It's, it's Catherine. You, the quiz is for the person that thinks their friend is toxic, right? Yeah, you're not doing this. True. You're like, I'm so toxic. I'm going to test this. <laughs> that's true. Okay. So we're going to do this quiz as Catherine. Mm-hmm. I will go ahead and ask you the questions. Answer as Catherine. If you can, madam. Okay. okay. Let me do my Catherine voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how does Catherine sound? Okay. Hello. So, thinking of Isabella, first question. Does she love drama? Yes or no? Yes, obviously. Oh, yeah. She loves drama. Is arguing with Isabella a nightmare? I feel like she talks you into circles. Like it's really. It's, you can't argue with Isabella because nothing's an argument. And then she's like, oh, you sly thing. Yeah. So I'm actually going to call that a nightmare because I would prefer to just argue with someone. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just exhausting. Every yeah. conversation is exhausting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, do you feel insecure around Isabella? No. Okay. Oh, but I mean, does she? Because not. I don't think she feels insecure in the way that the quiz means. Mm-hmm. But also don't forget the quiz is written for like 2020 people. Right. But Isabella does put Catherine into situations where Catherine's like, is this okay? Yeah. Like, and she's worrying about what other people are going to think about their behavior and stuff like that. So yeah, I think she makes her feel in- insecure in a way. Isabella likes to remind you that she is like family close family and that family comes first like it or not yeah i mean definitely she's like oh you you're the most important person to me like yeah totally we're sisters mm-hmm. um, oh, i absolutely dote on her stuff like that yeah absolutely it's never isabella's fault and you always yeah. have to understand and take her side okay yeah 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 yuppity yep isabella's not doing so well i can already tell Isabella hooked up with your ex and didn't tell you. When you confronted her, she made you you feel petty. Yes. Yeah, she would do that. Isabella is boring. I mean, Isabella doesn't let you get a word in, but I wouldn't say, because they do like each other. Yeah. So on some of these, I do think we need to be fair to the friendship. Totally. So I'm going to, that's a no. I don't think Catherine would say Isabella's boring. No, I don't think so either. It's not an option to hang out with Isabella in a group. Quite the opposite, right? Like she wants you to hang out in that posse. Yeah, I mean, she wants, but she wants you to hang out with her brother and with James. Mm -hmm. So it's like the control thing. Mm -hmm. So although it's saying one-on-one, I think one-on-three still counts in this situation because of what they're getting at, right? Right. It's not... It's not other people, it's the three of them. Yeah. And I think that's also toxic. Like, we are friends. Yes. And defining this that This is circle. our group. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Isabella embarrasses you. Yes. The ball scene when she dances with um, Captain Tilney, Mm -hmm. I I think there's embarrassment there when Catherine's like, you're engaged to my brother, like, what are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. You never feel heard in an argument with Isabella. Or in any conversation. Right, for sure. Isabella thinks that you were dealt a better hand than she was. Yes, because she thinks that Catherine is the heiress to the vast yes. Allen estate. <laughs> and they're not listening. Yeah. Her She's or like, John. No. <laughs> no, you have a better life. They go all Jekyll and Hyde on you. Mood swings are an understatement. No. Yeah. She's pretty controlled, isn't she? Yeah. It's all like, it's all the face. Because even when she's like, oh, can you talk to James for me? The, she doesn't, Isabel is not there when she's having those moments, I think. She, it's very, it's a very like controlled performance. Mm-hmm. Oh, but there's no, because there's that bit when she won't go. And then they're like, oh, you're so selfish. Oh, that is true. And then the others true. are doing it. Yeah. Yes. So that's a yes. Yeah. Your other friends are concerned about this relationship. Yes. Henry Tilney's very concerned. Yeah, Henry's... He does not get it. Calculating results. Wow. Possessive, semi-toxic. Okay. All right. Okay. Even the best of friends need to be able to spend time with other people from time to time. So watch out for friends who exclude others from spending time with you or act possessive or angry when you tell them you're spending time with your college roommate, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and or now- if they like kidnap you yeah. when you've got a date with like your boyfriend and his sister. Uh, now it gives you advice for how to break up with that toxic friend. Oh, what should I, Catherine Morland, do? Okay. I so- am but a girl of 17. <laughs> you need to make up your mind about what you uh-huh. want. You need yeah. to prepare for the talk. So you might have mm-hmm. to like write an outline of what you want to say to Isabella. You need to actually have the talk. And also try not to argue and talk in a public place. It's funny because Austin never gives us that, but that's Mm -hmm. a spoiler for next week. Yeah, it is. If you want to find out, does Catherine take this advice? I guess you'll have to tune in again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, guys. All right. I will um, put the link to this quiz in our Facebook group. How about that? If you guys want to take it. As any Should of the we do other it about characters. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Hannah and Lauren in a toxic relationship. <laughs> Maybe you guys can choose which of us you're being. If you want to jump in on this read along, it is not too late. You can find us on the internets and talk to us about Northanger Abbey on social media. And Hannah, what is social media? How do you join it? What's our handle? Social media is an injection that you get and it puts like a small bit of plastic into your body that slowly dissolves over about six years. Wow. It's intense. Or is that, that's birth control. They're similar. Similar. They are similar. Too close to uh, call. You can, find us, <laughs> you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at bonnets at dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. Uh, and you can join the Facebook group where the majority of this read-along is happening by searching for Bonnets at Dawn in Facebook. Yep. And just answering those those questions. 
important point guys if you're listening to this hear me when I say just answer those questions and prove you're not a robot or a monster and we'll let you in sounds good otherwise you shall not pass (laughs) it's true Hannah will delete you right away (laughs) she will Thank you.